On episode 10 of Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss the fine art of listening, source control, the risks of being an internal IT developer, and the state of current mobile platforms. Oh, and how to clean the toilet. From IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Hey, what's up? Uh, just a, working on Stack Overflow, the usual uh, things. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Contrary to popular opinion, we do actually do work on the project. I know you don't believe me, but uh, it does actually. What is this project again? It's a, it's going to have a podcast. <laughs> yes, some kind of website we're building. We should, that reminds me, we should actually probably take some time to explain to some of the new listeners, the IT Conversations listeners who suddenly got our podcast shoveled into their iPods without asking for it, a little bit about what we're building and what the point of the podcast is. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, so Stack Overflow is a joint venture between me and Joel where we're trying to combine our communities, our respective sort of programmers and those that love programmers, um, and actually build a website that serves that community. It's sort of built by them for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's specifically to, to, to address the growing numbers of programmers that aren't really learning programming from reading books anymore. They're learning programming by doing stuff, you know, loading their IDE or, you know, TextMate or whatever they use, and just trying things. And when something doesn't work, they then do a web search to find out why didn't that work? How can I learn more about this? Yep. Um, and so Stack Overflow is really there to feed those searches. And it's, it's, it's not by us, me or you, but really everyone. Um, so as little problems come up, you'll post a question on Stack Overflow. And it's very low friction, very simple website, uh, not a lot of long-term commitments, no sign-up. Uh, very Wikipedia-like in some aspects. And our hope is that you'll find... Uh, be able to post your question and also find answers to the questions you have while programming on the site. Cool. Um, yeah, and, and, then, and uh, yeah, I have. I, well, I have. I have my movie pitch. Hold on, my movie pitch, oh. which is it's sort of like is Wikipedia it elevator pitch. <laughs> it's like that, but I like to call it the movie pitch. Yeah. You know, they always talk about movies. You know, it's like Driving Miss Daisy meets The Predator, right? Right. Um, so I'm going to call it's it The Graduate. Ten years later. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So it's. It's like Wikipedia meets uh, blogs meets uh, Reddit slash uh, dig. Uh, and also a bit of experts exchange, but we have very ambivalent feelings towards experts want, exchange. You don't want to mention them. Yes. Sorry. I've already done it. First of all, they put that annoying hyphen in there. So it used to be expert sex change. And then yeah. they put the hyphen in to disambiguate. Yeah. They should just embrace that identity, I think. Exactly. You know? That was kind of sort of funny. <laughs> Yesterday yeah, I, I had a, uh, an error message and I tried typing it in and went to Experts Exchange and it said the answer uh, is only available if you pay. Um, but of course, sometimes if you just keep scrolling down, you'll see the answer anyway. Well, I will say that some of the people at Experts Exchange do have a sense of humor because they actually saw what we were doing, someone did in their community, mm -hmm. and invited me to their conference, which is like in August. And I've got to oh, figure awesome. out where that is. Where is actually. it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's kind yeah. of important. <laughs> But I thought I might go because it seems like at least a couple people had you know, a, sense or a sense of humor and they realized, that, hey, you know, we're not all necessarily competing. It's a very large pie, which is the way I still view it. You know, a lot of the people that contribute there are going to contribute to our site. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, it's I think our site is going to be better because it's going to be very low friction and very simple and clean and just basic. Uh, so I think we'll distinguish ourselves that way, if by no other way than that. We're not going to be selling memberships. No, we won't be selling you anything. Um, it eventually be ads, just to be clear, because this is a this is not, unlike Wikipedia. This is actually a for-profit venture, but um, 
you know, in a very tasteful way is the way I say it, and in a way that serves the community and not fights it. Right. In an earlier episode, we'd actually talked about trying to make sure that the questions and answers were in some way Creative Commons licensed or something. Oh, so. yeah. Uh, CC Wiki is what we're going to use. And actually, somebody emailed me who had grave concerns about how we were going to license, and I, and I emailed them and said, hey, you know, I'm, CC Wiki's in the beta. It's in the footer of the beta. Um, and what do you think of that? And, he, and I guess he hadn't seen that particular one, but he seemed very encouraged that we were thinking about it and doing something about it. And, and that's really the intent of these these podcasts and the blog and all this other stuff. Is And why we talk about it before it's actually available is we want to get feedback from the community on what it is we're supposed to be building as we build it. And we don't want that to go on too long, obviously. We don't want to have like a Duke Nukem Forever type situation where, <laughs> you know, it never actually ships. But uh, I don't think we'll have that problem. That's funny. I, you know, I was pretty sure that's, uh, that's an excellent opportunity for a rat hole. That, that Duke Nukem Forever, I was, I, I've been convinced for the last decade or so that they're just pulling one over on us, pretending that there's another version of Duke Nukem coming out. They're not really doing anything. And every once in a while, just for kicks, they'll leak something somewhere to somebody. To you know, in a way, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be disappointed when it ships because it's become the benchmark for all software of like, well, at least we ship before Duke Nukem Forever. Like the Wine Project, <laughs> did you see this was news? The Wine Project, which is like a Windows emulator under Unix. Yes, they actually declared that they're one. No, yeah, yeah. That was 15 years. Really. <laughs> 15. It's an old project. I remember a friend who worked at Sun. Gosh, this was in like 93. And she was telling me about the wine project. And it wasn't a new project then. There was another one that was made by this company company called Bristol Technology. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? It was like a way to get your code to compile under Unix uh, if it was Windows code. I don't remember that. And I don't know what happened to them. I think Microsoft sued them into oblivion. uh, Because, I don't know, let's look up Bristol on the web. Uh, yeah, I don't know oh, that one, but I, I know wine. Bristol. It's probably not the best search term to use. Wow. They're just gone. That's what happens when Microsoft doesn't like you, man. They're, they're they, just gone. They were bought by, uh, yeah, there was, uh, they were acquired by HP, but it looks like they've long since given up their original p- product, which was uh, kind of like a commercial version of wine, essentially. Ah, I see. Um, okay, let's see. I had some. Do we have something to talk about? Oh, uh, just to just to conclude, then what the, what this podcast is for those of you that are new to the podcast uh, is uh, since uh, Jeff and I are on, are on opposite coasts. Jeff is on the left coast, and I am on the correct coast. Uh, we uh, we uh, meet. Uh, virtually every week by having a uh, about an hour-long phone conversation just to check up on the status and talk about any design questions that may have come up or uh, things that are going on with uh, Stack Overflow and just generally just to chat, you know, and we thought it'd be fun as long as we're having these weekly phone conversations to start recording them, which is what we did. Uh, in the first episodes, you can actually hear they sound like phone calls. We've since switched to Skype, which has higher audio quality. And, and you're uh, using it. You're using a new fancy mic, right? I'm, yeah, I'm using one of these like fancy radio broadcaster mics. Awesome. I, I can't I can't hear the difference. Can I, I can hear it. Yeah, yeah, I definitely can because there was a little bit of breath noise on the other one, but it, it sounds it's it's better. That's true. Um, We've also eliminated the air conditioning noise that was pre, it's pretty loud in our office. Yes. Uh, so I also have a com- I wanted to make a confession. So mm-hmm. the way this works is we record them and then I listen to them and actually make semi-detailed notes about sort of what we talked about and some. I like to hyperlink a bunch of stuff so that people who don't want to listen or just want to see the topics can follow along. Mm-hmm. Um, and plus, I, f- I find it useful as well to go. Yeah, I think notes. that's that's incredibly useful to the show notes. Yeah. Um, so I want to make a confession. So as I'm listening to the show, I realize that, and I've gotten better with this, and I think there's other reasons this happens i realize i'm not hearing everything you say <laughs> this is probably not a revolution a revelation to people what? who realize listening is really hard um and in my defense a lot of times like i don't want there to be dead air as we're talking so i'm trying to cue up things i want to say so that there's not some long pause while i think about oh what should i say next um so that's my defense if you're not uh, listening gotten, to me well it's strange i would hear you say something like well, i it, it, you know, after the fact, and we go, wow, I totally did not hear Joel this, say that. I'm just going to have to have a test. There's going to be a test at the end of this episode. 
But no, listening is hard. I mean, I think that's that's really the lesson is like, do you really listen to people? It was really kind of shocking to me when I when I did that, and I've really tried to do better because I was shocked. I was like, how can I not be listening to someone who's talking to me? But I think you'd be surprised. I mean, just recording yourself and, and listening to it this way is is a little bit shocking in, in what goes on. And I, I have improved. I, I've noticed that it happens less often where you'll say something and go, wow, I wish I had heard that the first time because I would have responded to it. Um, so that's my uh, confession of this particular podcast. Uh, we have a lot of progress on, on the project, so I, there's a number of things I can talk about there. D- how many questions do we have queued up? Okay, uh, let's see. Um, wait, you were saying something, but I wasn't listening. Um, how many questions do we have queued up? <laughs> uh, I, got, I got three. Um, okay. And also, well, I've also queued up um, this. So if you want to tell any jokes... I got a rim shot oh, all set up. Okay, please. That's we're only gonna do that once ever, right? That was the one time and Oh yeah. I, I guess I asked for There's that. There's a website so. you can go to. Yeah, that's great. Um, great. So now it's like a morning it's called show, instant, you know. Instantrimshot.com. It's just got a big gigantic red button right in the middle. And when you click it you get, Isn't that awesome? If you ever need that really quickly. That's great. We can't do that enough. I think we should have a whole show where that's right, what we I'm do. Dope. There's a site like that. Those are called single-serving uh-huh. websites, websites that you go to have very, very – that's one thing they do, and it's ridiculously simple. There's a site like that, but it does that um, oh, sound, yeah. <laughs> which I find much funnier, actually. My wife uh, told me she used to work with someone, and they talked about the transition sa- sound between this person's slide should be that wah, 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 <laughs> because it's their presentations were so bad <laughs> that uh, that would that would have been wholly appropriate for that person. So let's let's talk about Stack Overflow and what's going on. So first of all, we did have uh, a beta site up and uh, very clever hacker listeners figured out the the URL for our site, not that it's very difficult to figure out. <laughs> and we're actually interacting with the site. Now normally I would actually welcome this and I, I you know don't get me wrong. I think it's very cool that you guys are interested and engaged and want to help us. Uh, but the site is really not fit for human consumption at the moment uh, in that we're rebuilding the database like pretty much I daily. I can figure it out. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Are you – maybe you know this is like one of those tests you talk about in your, in your book. Maybe you're failing your own. You wouldn't hire yourself at this point. What is – it's not beta.stackoverflow.com. It, it it is that that was what it was, but oh. I moved it because because uh, people were figuring. Yeah. And this is really for your own protection. I mean, I I, I want to wait until the public beta, or the, excuse me, the okay. private beta. Okay, which is okay, okay. What was your blog post about this week on coding R? Not your not that you only had one, but what was your blog? Let me ask. Uh, the one that you actually June fourteenth, two thousand and eight, <laughs> and the headline of which uh, was is it the one- "Don't Go Dark." <laughs> Well, I thought that was – yeah, you commented there. And I was like, that was a little unfair <laughs> because <laughs> have we really been dark? We have this podcast. We have a blog where we talk about That's what true. we're doing. Uh, we're not really dark. Dark is like dark. Dark is like just a void where there's no idea what's mm-hmm. going on, and I, I don't think that's fair to characterize oh, you're right. it that way. Um, but but anyway, I, I, I do appreciate the interest. And actually, anybody who found the beta site legitimately, mm-hmm. um, email me because I will give you a special badge, um, a hacker badge. Oh, that will be on your profile on the uh, the real site once we have the private betas, which I thought you might find fun. And we don't need no stinking badges. Uh, I think the badges are fun. I think people will see how no, they work, and they're completely optional. You can just ignore them um, if you don't badges? like them. Um, I know the movie you're referring to. That's the Sierra yeah. Madre, Treasure of the Sierra. And it's one of those things that they never way- really say that the way you. You know, they never actually say that. Right. It's a, it's, 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 quote, it's a misremembered yeah. quote. Uh, let's see. The official yeah, quote happens. is badges. We don't need no stinking badges. Yeah. It's, I don't it have to show you any stinking though. badges. Yes. Uh, so the badges, the way we're viewing them, um, are complementary to, to your reputation score. Um, and all that, all this is again optional. You can ignore it. Uh, but it's for a way that for people that are participating in the system, the only importance it will have mm-hmm. to people is you will not be able to to treat the site like a wiki and actually edit everything until you get enough reputation in the system. So we're like Wikipedia in that you can edit everything, but we're unlike Wikipedia in that you have to earn that ability a little bit um, by participating in the system uh, normally for I a think while, that's awesome. and then after this, after the system trusts you, it'll say, okay, you can do this because you're. You know, you've participated. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it's a good balance because we'll still have anonymous participation, to be clear. Anonymous people will be able to ask and answer questions no problem. They just can't edit because we view edit as kind of a privileged operation. I think, that, I think this is going to be terrific. Yeah, I think it's a nice compromise. I mean, I think it, it's a nice, sweet uh, middle ground that, that will work well. So we've done a lot of work around build. Well, t- technically, Jared, uh, my one of my coworkers on this project, did a tremendous job on getting our build up and running. So we actually have a build script now that's checked into source mm-hmm. control. Uh, so we can do we can pass the Joel test. We can do a one-step build that deploys the database, uh, the code, um, and actually even does unit tests. Jared went way above and beyond. Uh, one of the advantages of the MVC mm-hmm. framework, it's really easy to write unit tests for this site because everything is is a, a URL. Like every action is a URL. Uh, okay. There's not a lot of postback stuff going on. Um, so we actually have, as part of the build, it deploys the database, deploys the code, and then it actually creates users, you know, and that's just, again, URL now, based, be, and actually creates questions. Don't you have to be a little careful to make sure that, like, those URLs aren't things that search engines and Google spiders and stuff will accidentally hit? Like, if you've got a button that's like, click here to delete all posts in this area, and then a search engine comes along and clicks it while it's downloading copies of everything because it thinks it's just a link. Yeah, I, I, I think that's not usually a problem. I mean, I, I think as much as the web is, you know, just a random motley assortment of code, I think that would be happening. It's not a problem if it's uh, behind a form or something, but like sometimes you have a temptation to. I think that I think that's why there's this there's this general rule that a hyperlink should never take an action. Uh, right. Only uh, form submits should take actions because the the uh, you know the spiders will never try to fill in a form. Well, it's not that we don't have some postbacks. I think there are some postbacks, but they're greatly reduced r- relative to the typical ASP.NET programming model. The you know pretend we're on a Windows and form it's a model. GUI and VB. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so I think it's it's not entirely that way, um, but just enough so that the development I think becomes simpler. And uh, one manifestation of that is these unit tests. And it was cool actually. Last night I had added a field to the database, and I couldn't get it to deploy, and I wasn't really thinking about what was happening, and. Uh, Jeff, another developer, looked at it because I wanted to have another pair of eyes on it. And he's like, oh, you're failing this unit test. And that actually blocked the rest of the deployment, nice. which made total sense. Hey, uh, yeah, I know. It was very cool. So I, I want to give Jared credit for doing that because first I was like, why are we wasting our time on – I am not – to be clear, I'm not – I love I love tests, but I'm not a test first guy. I just don't get that nope. religion. Um, I, I view it as you want to have a, some some of the site running then sort of add your tests in after you have sort of a minimum level of basic functionality. Well, of course, the temptation. I mean, that's definitely... I, w- I was talking to... Who was I talking to about this yesterday? You? Anyway, some... It wasn't me. <laughs> there's, there's a real tendency... Uh, you know, the, all, all, the one thing that all developers in the world have in common is that they will tell you that the code base they're working on sucks and it's a big mess, and if they were only working someplace else that was more professional, the code would be nice and whatever. And there's a real tendency whenever you're doing any kind of project, no matter how large, how small, how much code, whether it's like 15 minutes of code that you're going to write right now or a day of code or a week of code, to do it in two phases. And in the first phase, you say, let me just get it working. Because if I don't have something working, then there's no point if it's good or not. I'm going to do the minimum. And you really want to get that reward of getting something up and running and seeing it working. And then you can come back and make it fast, and you can improve the algorithm, and you can polish things, and you can restructure the code so it's clean. And, and there is just a real tendency, and that's, where you, that's when you start to use cut-and-paste code and all kinds of the anti-patterns um, from that great book called Anti-Patterns. I don't know if that's on my list, but all the, all the, all the things that you do to just get it working that you think you'll clean up later. And then the joke is, you never come back and clean them up later. And that's not because you're a failure as a human being, although you might be, but that's not why you're not doing those other things. You're not doing those other things because once you have it working, they suddenly seem a lot less interesting to you. You're like, you know, I got a few pages of code. I don't even have to look at it anymore because the code now works. Like, why should I even worry about that? In fact, it occurred to me, and and, and I, I started to notice this phenomenon with code that I wrote on Thursday. I, I try to make like at least a day every week or two in which I literally do not open my email or web browser and just try to take a day and write code. Otherwise, I would never get any code written. And uh, um, what I was writing actually is a little uh, utility for the internal salespeople here at Fog Creek to use uh, to generate coupons, uh, which is 99% of the coupons are somebody asking for an educational discount on our software, so we give them a coupon. So um, uh, we used to have this horrible way of doing it, and I made a good way of doing it. 
And uh, basically, somewhere in there, the, the, the data structure works like this in the database. There's a row for each coupon. And then for every coupon, it, it may cause various discounts to be applied to various products. So like I can give you a coupon that's worth 50% off on Fogbugs for Windows, 50% off on Fogbugs for Macintosh, 50% off on Fogbugs for Unix, 30% off on Copilot, or whatever the case may be. So uh, that's obviously a one-to-many relation. And so I got to insert one record in the coupon table, and then I got to get the uh, ID of that record and insert a whole bunch of records in the r- coupon uh, line line of coupon table, all using that ID. And I was actually doing this from code. Uh, and uh, as I was doing this, it suddenly occurred, I was doing this by having two separate blocks of C sharp code: the code that inserts the coupon, and then the code that gets the uh, ID newly inserted ID and creates all those other rows. And I suddenly realized I could do this all from, uh, you know, a single SQL statement or maybe, you know, maybe not one statement, but uh, the the statements could be merged into one call. And that would make uh, what is now about a page of code become about half a page of code and it'd just be cleaner and nicer. Did I do it? No. Because I got the thing working and then I went home. And there's just no reason ever to open up that code again. But if anybody does open it up, they're going to say, uh, why didn't he? Well, you don't have anybody reviewing the code, do you? <laughs> you don't have multiple stuff. <laughs> nobody, nobody. It helps tremendously. I mean, that's why I was really glad to add Jeff to the team, because having working with another developer is really yeah. big. Just, you know, the value of having four eyes versus two oh, is yeah. like... And this isn't, to be fair, this is not really quote-unquote production code. This isn't code that we're trying to sell to somebody. It doesn't have to last very long. It's just a tool for our internal salespeople to use. Once it works, and this is one of the things that I think people find depressing when they work in internal IT instead of working in a product company as software developers. Uh, it can be real depressing because once you get the code working, the business case for spending any more time on it evaporates. It's like we can now make coupons. So... Why are you right. concerned about whether there's like you know one SQL call or two SQL calls there? So don't even obsess about it. And uh, right, well, yeah, time to refactor because that is true. I mean, you know, you move on to the next project, you're done. But is is code really done? When is code done? I mean, you could, I mean, you could sit there know, and you could polish that little piece of code for the till the end of eternity. You can make the world's best, but but it would not improve your salespeople's ability to make coupons. And therefore, there, there's no business case for it, and it's a waste of time. On the other hand, if you make a company that's like the, you know, the, the, the coupon company, and that's your whole business, is making it really easy to make coupons. I, I don't even know what that means. Um, but, uh, you, but let's say this code is a part of a product. Then every time I make it better, I'm going to improve my customer's happiness and therefore sell more copies. So when you're, you're writing production code that you're going to sell or code for – the marketplace, or or even like working on a website, the whole world's going to see like like you guys are, uh, like uh, you know anything Stack Overflow, Google, whatever. Uh, every time you make that code better, uh, you make your business more successful. Whereas when it's that secondary support code that's being used for some internal payroll application, it just has to get good enough, and then there is uh, uh, no return on investment for any further work. So I think the people in IT departments are just really depressed. Or eventually they get kind of frustrated because there's a real strong business argument for them just not to work very hard or make their code very nice. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the key pieces of advice I think a lot of people eventually arrive at as a software developer is if you really love this stuff, you have to work somewhere where software is the product. It's the the, the thing you're trying to deliver to the customer. Because if you don't, then you're invariably going to get frustrated. Yeah. Um, with the model, and I, I think that's natural. And I think you just have to realize what kind of developer you are. Are, are you, you know, just are, are the guy, who, kind of guy who does it nine to five? It's your job. You know, you don't really want to take it home with you, or is it like everything in your life, like it is for me, which is you know a little disturbing? Um, then you definitely want to work for a software company. Um, and I think that's a key decision you have to make. And I've certainly given people that advice before mm-hmm. um, that I identified as developers who really just love the process of coding. Um, it kind of destroys you inside after a while if you can't give the code the love that you know you feel it, it mm-hmm. needs. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a completely valid point, and it's been brought up. I know you've brought it up, and it, it remains totally valid. My time in industry was working at uh, Viacom, uh, and so I worked on websites for uh, MTV, the Sundance Channel, 
Blockbuster. Uh, you know, Viacom is just this big holding company that owns all these other media companies. Um, MTV is the most famous one. But uh, and uh, uh, the code that I was writing there, I just remember like getting something that they wanted. Somebody wanted like an automated FTP, and I wrote this totally overkill, elegant system for synchronizing two directories using FTP uh, from a laptop to a server, and then and then launching some kind of a content management system in the background and it was just like it was totally overkill and they appreciated that but then I documented it and I made a setup application and I made an administrative tool and I made six there were six different manuals depending on what your role was in using this thing you had a custom written manual that described exactly how you worked with this tool and Nobody ever once looked at those. And the only reason I even did that is because I, I was basically underemployed there and just had nothing to do most of the day. So, um, you know, so I sat around polishing these things. And it was sort of frustrating to me that absolutely nobody ever looked at it or used it or <laughs> ran the code. But then they certainly didn't appreciate the overkill that went into creating the promotional website, the internal promotional website for the tool or the documentation or the setup apps or anything like that. Right, and that's the interesting thing about your history is because I always think of Joel as the Joel on software, Joel. But if you look at your history, it's really interesting. You followed in the footsteps, I think, a lot of typical developers who who come come up through just you know internal IT. Um, you had jobs like that. And it's so hard for me to imagine jo- you <laughs> in that role. Wow. You, know? you know, I used to have to you know watch just dishes. doing just internal line of business apps. Yeah, that's pretty fine. much. You were like peeling the, the programming equivalent of peeling potatoes. No, but I actually did peel potatoes. Just, I didn't peel that many potatoes. Uh, onions. When you peel onions, ugh. I, I worked in the. Uh, you know, when I was in the Israeli army, there were I just spent months working in the like the the, the I don't want to say dining room because it was a tent with mud floors in the desert. Um, and my job was setting the table and washing the dishes, clearing the table, setting the table, washing the dishes, and that was like eighteen hours a day. Setting tables, clearing tables, washing dishes. You know, it's interesting. A lot of the, your military – I've been meaning to bring this up, and I guess we might as well since we're on it. Um, your military background has been really fertile ground for you for writing. And it was always interesting to me because one of your favorite posts that you wrote was about learning how to clean the mm-hmm. toilet when the uh, the starched, you know, super clean yep. lieutenant Sergeant. or whatever rank – sergeant said, this is how you clean a toilet. Mm-hmm. And then he proceeded to get down on his knees and clean mm-hmm. the toilet. And you were like, wow. And I was like, that's such a powerful... Uh, it really was. No, but you know, I fell in love with that guy. Oh, my leadership. God. What a great guy. I was just yeah. like... I mean, no, that's leadership. I would have gone leadership. I've actually saw another hand. anecdote. Yeah, that, that was similar where there was, somebody had spilled something on the floor, and like the CEO of the company comes over and starts cleaning it up, right? Because the, the lesson is everybody takes responsibility for everything that happens. Just because you're the CEO doesn't mean you get a pass on you know doing the things that need to be mm-hmm. done. And that's... That's I love that story and uh, it's not just that it's it also makes me like for that CEO it's like I am not above you I'm not some special person that needs to be spoon fed that can't clean up his own spills and uh, and also you know you guys are the start like we really do draw our org charts upside down at Frog Creek and we see uh, uh, quote unquote management as just being here to support uh, support people and in fact I was talking to somebody who was recently promoted to be the team lead of Fog Bugs. Um, who uh, was talking to me today, and he's like, you know, the, he's, he, he, he mentioned something which he thought was kind of frustrating, which was that uh, a lot of times when there are like little emergencies that just need to be fixed, like, oh, there's a little bug here in some old version of some code. you got to check out that old version, fix it, get it deployed to these four customers, whatever. These just like little emergencies erupt all the time. And uh, he winds up doing all that stuff. And the reason is because at Fog Creek, we totally recognize that we want – our developers to be able to concentrate on one thing and just come in and concentrate on that thing and never get interrupted and not have to multitask. And the only way to make that happen in the real world when there's all kinds of little emergencies cropping up all the time is that the emergencies get handled by the managers so that the people can do their job, no matter how grubby the emergencies are. And if you look at what me and uh, Michael do here, it's just a lot of like ad hoc, like literally, uh, you know, right now I'm making decisions about the benches that will go in the coffee bar for our new office. You know, stuff that you would think like, hey, why don't you delegate that stuff and think about the big picture? But the whole reason I'm not delegating that stuff is so that uh, the staff here can concentrate on just doing one thing, whatever that th- their thing may be. The salespeople can do sales and the uh, uh, developers can do development. So it, it, an interesting part about saying, like literally saying our hierarchy is upside down 
management is a support function. It's there to support the developers doing their jobs. I mean that as you get promoted into management, you're going to find that you're the person that has to do all those little cleanup jobs and all those little emergencies that crop up so that uh, the developers can have kind of the luxury of just doing whatever their main you know, multi-month project is without it. I think that's a great great way to look at it. And the way I've described it, which I think is similar, is your job as a manager is to throw yourself on grenades to protect mm-hmm. me from being interrupted or having to go to these pointless meetings that you have to yeah. go to. <laughs> and I always told him, I was like, I do not envy your job like in the slightest. I was like, it's, it's, you're doing the things that yeah. I don't I do. want to have yeah. to be bothered doing. But I think that understanding the whole, you know, preventing them from being interrupted and, uh, you know, is the core lesson. And I think it's it's great. pretty hard, and it's gonna. You guys are sort of already doing it with Stack Overflow, um, but uh, I remember the early days of Fog Creek when we were literally two people. It was me and Michael, and we would just take turns doing everything else so that one person could sit and write code. So there were there was a there was a big block of time when I just did literally everything at Fog Creek except for uh, what Michael was doing, and Michael was writing. Uh, let's see, what was he doing? At one point, he was writing uh, the, the store, the online store. Uh, and uh, then at one point, I actually went through Fogbugs line by line and cleaned cleaned it all up to make it like code that would last for a thousand years instead of code that was sort of kind of able to work. And um, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that I think much of that structure still exists. And uh, um, so, but but anyway, the point is that while while we were doing this, the other person was doing literally everything else. And um, we, we, one of the things I discovered is like a sort of a small business when you're operating, when you have it, all the features that a small business has, including customers, um, that's at least 50 to 60% of one person's time is the overhead of maintaining the fact that you are a business. I don't even, sure. yeah, I'm not sure what stuff is. Well, I, I term some of what I do is now as crowd control, mm-hmm. basically, where I'm trying to respond to emails and you know manage the comments and basically deal with our my and our online presence mm-hmm. um and and that does take some time um but it's but something that you know jared and jeff hopefully don't have to yeah. worry about well that's your number great. one contribution is you know i would call it uh i put that in the category of pr basically is in some way gaining uh uh pe- making people aware that we have this thing and that we're working on and uh well, right. Well, that's why it was ironic you left that comment about because <laughs> that's pretty much the opposite of everything that I do. Uh, I think you just are really chomping at the bit to see the site, which you will be able to. I'm going to give you the other secret URL <laughs> now, which maybe someone will figure that one out too. I don't know. <laughs> ah, security through obscurity at the times. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then so, I know what it is. It's probably like codinghard.stackoverflow.com. Secret.stackoverflow. Yeah, who knows? Someone will probably write a dictionary attack and break it in like minutes. Wait, um, can I just so a DNS uh, I, I wanna, query and find out what, what all is there? Uh, I don't know if you can. I don't know, actually. I mean, I know how I set up the prefixes. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, like I said, I don't mind people coming to see the site. It's really for your own protection. I mean, if people want to see it, that's totally cool with me. It's just it's it's sort of actively hostile to human <laughs> life at this moment. So if you're into that, then, you know, please. Uh, what would be – that's funny. What so would be what, a website that was actually, like, literally hostile to human life? I mean, they could have – well, first of all, you'd want to have flashing because at least you can get the epileptics to go into a seizure. So there's a minimum – Well, those sites – you're joking, but those sites actually exist. I mean, pretty much there's sites that try to game you. They're like, download this video codec to, to look at this video of who knows what, right? But it's an EXE, which has you – know, And then there's the one where it's there's, like – a lot of evil. They're like, can you see the ghost in this picture? And you're like staring and staring. You're like, no, where is it? And then like the whole picture changes oh. to a, like a screaming person. Yeah. Those those are, yeah. The, I've, I've, I've gotten bit by those before. And then you feel like a doofus. You're like, I feel like a total idiot now. So, yeah. So uh, another thing I want to talk about briefly is we are using Subversion for source control, which I view as a good default choice. I mean, it's free. Um, it's pretty good. There's things that kind of freak me out about Subversion, having used a few other source control systems. But it's certainly good at the what very least. Of- and uh, well, there's there's parts of the model that I find unsatisfying. I think it's just about source control in general because I've started to learn a little bit about distributed version control and how yeah, that Git works. Yeah, Git and two um, big ones right now. And, and really, the, the key point to take away there is not that okay, it's this radical new model, but they make branching and merging 
trivially easy. And branching and merging in Subversion are so painful, both technologically and from a UI standpoint. And that's huge because I view one of the main benefits of source control is this whole having parallel universes run alongside each other where you can explore different techniques you know, you have a padded room where you can do stuff safely and then, you know, merge back into reality. Oh, wait, you don't have to – to, to have a padded room, you don't have to have a branch. You just have to have your own checkout, and you, you act like you're in a little padded room. And then if you don't like what happened, then you just delete it and check – you know, go back to the, what's in the repository. Well, that's right. And you're hitting on one of the key tenets of distributed version control, which is that when you're working locally, quote-unquote, you would still be under version right. control. Just implicitly. Right. And that's and, the trouble with CVS yeah. is like so as, it, while you're in that padded room, you're just on your hard drive. That's right. And, and see, in distributed version control, you're actually still under version control at that point. So you have a total record of every little thing that you did. Um, it's a great model, but really the mindset of making branching and merging easy is, is the thing I object to. The thing that Subversion does not do very well, and I think the UI like of Tortoise, which is what most people use, the file system shell extension, is not still kind of a programmer UI, and I mean that in the negative. But I mean, it is a programming tool. I mean, the truth is, I find that the UI. It is. Yeah. Um, the I, I, the Tortoise is an awesome tool. On the other hand, the the you, you're going to have to learn four or five important concepts. And you're really going to have to get how this thing works before you can start with it. And Tortoise does not relieve you. I don't think any GUI would ever relieve you of that necessity to understand what it is that a source code control system is going to do for you until you understand what it, what operations it's doing, which is kind of hard and kind of theoretical and very abstract in a way. Uh, so it takes a while to get source it. control is is tough. I mean, it's definitely the be- I view it as the bedrock of software engineering, and 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 to truly understand source control, particularly once you get into branching yeah. and merging and some of the more advanced things that you really should be doing, um, it is not easy to understand that stuff. Because I in my previous job, I basically had to teach that stuff to software developers, and it, it's not easy to teach. No that stuff to people and it's not easy to actually even understand it so you can sort of it's pretty confusing it and so i don't think yeah i think tortoise if like tortoise cannot like no gui is going to make this thing simple for people to understand even when you consider just backups think about like time machine the apple's time machine user interface for backups Mm -hmm. which is not exactly source control because it's linear but you know it's a little bit like it and even that is that, that that gui Barely useful for making it comprehensible to people, but it still can be kind of a confusing subject. Well, I think there's a way of iteratively doing this where if, if you have any skill at UI, and I think a lot of the people, particularly some of the people working on Tortoise, I suspect, have not a lot of skill in that area. No offense to the Tortoise people, because it is a free tool. I mean, I'm complaining about things I'm getting for free, which is kind of unfair. Yeah. Um, but I feel like you can polish it, absolutely. You have that fact model. You say, okay, what are the top three issues that people run into using uh, uh, Tortoise or Subversion? And you would feed those back into the products. Like, how, from a UI perspective, can we ameliorate these problems? And then you would have that feedback loop. And I feel like they haven't gone very far down that path. Yeah. Um, but again, it's free. And it's much better than, say, SourceSafe, which I have a whole set of blog entries about. Please do not use SourceSafe. So if, you, if you're listening to this and you're using SourceSafe, Please explore the alternatives because SourceSafe kind of will poison your your mind <laughs> um, in that it is very very old source control it's, system and architecturally does not reflect anything remotely resembling yeah. modern source control, which is really we should a mention Tortoise, Tortoise SVN um, the uh, the person who wrote that code Stefan uh, Kung uh, is a guy in Switzerland he's a very brilliant programmer really nice guy and it's just all him <laughs> I don't think there's, there's you know people will send in bug fixes and stuff. But I think he does. Uh, he, it's pretty much his project, right? And and I, I apologize for coming across. No, this, you know, uh, that's okay. It's, it's an awesome tool. Uh, now the developers at, on Fogbugs or at Fog Week in general recently uh, insisted on switching to Mercurial. Um, and that's distributed. And that's version. a distributed version control system. Right now, the two contenders are Git and Mercurial, and they are um, uh, how can I put it? They're uh, kind of 1.0 products, and if you thought source code control is complicated, as soon as it becomes distributed, um, you gain new powers, but you do so at the cost of extra steps and new abstractions that you have to keep track of. And it could be even more confusing uh, to, to use something like a distributed source control and to, and to really get it right. So um, there is kind of a, an uphill battle there. And I think that uh, subversion is uh, probably reasonable for small projects where you just don't 
want to maybe they're more casual projects. The thing about Mercurial is it's the kind of thing that like unless you do it all the time every day and you're constantly branching and merging for various important reasons uh, and maybe you are physically distributed, like you literally are trying to work offline on a code base and then uh, resync up later. Um, unless you have all those reasons for using it, you're probably, you know, if you use it casually, you're going to forget how it works from one time to the next. So my experience has been that, uh, you know, if I, if I can spend a day a week working on code and that's when I'm lucky, uh, I also have to keep referring back to my notes of what the main commands are in Mercurial because it's just like there are a few too many concepts there for me to keep track of in my head all at once. And if you do it regularly, you'll, 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 you'll get it. But, uh, yeah. Well, I think there's – you're right. Those are new tools. And I think there's a huge opportunity there for someone to come in and build a really nice GUI, you know, an Apple-style GUI around this stuff because I still believe with the right GUI – you can you can you can attack these tough concepts and make them easier to break down and comprehend. The biggest problem, I mean, yeah. uh, and with mm-hmm. that, well, with that in mind, I was going to mention one tool that helped me tremendously with Subversion was uh, Visual SVN, which is a, a Visual Studio add-in. Since I work in Visual Studio mm-hmm. mostly, um, it sort of brings me the Subversion experience in Visual Studio, um, so I don't have to you know tab out to the file system to do operations, and I have sort of one-click operation to see you know what pending changes have I made mm-hmm. and it just really helps me understand the model because I'm viewing it more from the lens of not, okay, here's a bunch of crap in the file system, but here's my project in Visual Studio, and here's the current state of it in source control. So uh, that helped me tremendously. I definitely recommend, if you're in Visual Studio, uh, Visual SVN, uh, people had recommended it, and they were right. It totally changed my, my attitude. Didn't there used to be this problem that uh, that Visual Studio's understanding of source code control systems, Visual Studio assumed that they were uh, check-out, check-in models. Uh, Only in 2003. As of 2005, because of Team System, because the way Team System is a very modern source control system. I mean, love it or hate it, it's definitely Mm -hmm. modern. Um, And 2005, they changed the model completely. So that that was only true of 2003 and earlier. Cool. For those of you that don't know what we're talking about, there's, there's basically two philosophies of centralized source code control. There's the philosophy that is used by uh, Visual Source Safe, um, Perforce most of the time, uh, that says before an RCS, it says before you can work on something, you need to check it out and then it's yours. And you make your changes and then you check it in again. Uh, and then there's the, uh, uh, the simpler system that CVS and Subversion use that says uh, if you want to work on something, just start working on it. Just start editing the file and later you can decide to try to merge your changes in with everybody else's changes, but you don't really like own or lock out the file. And so, in particular, the, the, uh, the way the early versions of Visual Studio did their integration, I guess, in their first, first few 17 iterations of the IDE, the way they integrated it with these source control systems is that they would take care of like, checking out a file for you. If you, start, if you opened a file and started editing it, they'd be like, all right, let me go check that out for you. And uh, that, is, that is an operation that was not really necessary uh, in... Uh, uh, CVS or Subversion, and so it was hard in the old days to write appropriate plugins for Visual Studio for CVS or Subversion. I will say that as a developer, spend a lot of time learning, really learning source control. It will serve you as well as anything, any other computer science concept you can learn. Um, it is really that fundamental, and I meet so few developers that really get it. I mean, I feel like I've, I don't truly get all of it, but I've gone further than most because I was teaching other developers, so I sort of had mm-hmm. to learn it in more detail. But yes, please, if you hear this and you get motivated to learn more, and it doesn't really matter what you choose. Just choose something modern, like here's ones that I like that I've heard good things about. So Subversion, definitely, it's free. It's you know a lot of d- default choice for good reason. Perforce, a lot of people really like Perforce. Uh, team System, um, it has a server-connected model, which can be kind of a bummer, which means you have to be always connected, yeah. which a lot of people don't. But other than that, it actually is very good once you learn that and deal with that. And they're change- I think they're changing the model a little bit to deal with that. A lot of people are saying, well, I want to work totally disconnected, et cetera, et cetera. So for some reason, somebody in the architecture division decided early on that it would be fully connected all the time. Right on, they're just basically living, living with the consequences of that decision from now on. Um, but, but there are things that are really nice about it, and it's far, far better than uh, certainly uh, uh, SourceSafe. Yeah. And I think on par with version, minus the architectural difference of always being connected. Um, those are the three that I see get mentioned a lot. And then, of course, the new hot 
distributed version control systems, which are uh, Git and Mercurial, are also worth learning uh, and understanding how they work. So I think those are the key the key takeaways there. So before we go too much further, I want to get to the questions because I want to run oh, out of time. Oh, yeah. Well, there's infinite time. We can just grow all together here. Uh, what do we want to talk about? Let's... Uh, um, you know what, I'm going to take this one first. Hello, gentlemen. My name is Sebastian Dwarnik of Applied Sebastian. PDA Software, and I'm located just outside Toronto, Canada. I'm very interested in your oh, opinions right, of was. what you think about the current platform wars going on within the handheld mobile space. I mean, from the iPhone and Windows Mobile to Android, BlackBerry, and Symbian, it all seems quite familiar compared to the last great platform wars of the great desktop space. Do you think Microsoft can rule the handheld mobile space as well? Might this be one area that maybe Apple actually becomes a threat for dominance instead? Or will Google step in from the left and surprise everyone? It's no doubt an exciting time, and I'm really curious to hear what you think about it. Thank you. Well, with Google, that would be Android, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I've sort of started to get what Google is doing with Android, because they really are building more of an open ecosystem. Because I, I do like the Apple model, and I think the iPhone 2 is very strong. Uh, it's the product that the iPhone V1 should have been, and I think it's going to yeah, do I'm really, really well. And I like their app store. I think they have the right ideas about a lot of this stuff for that closed ecosystem, which handheld platforms are just closed ecosystems sort of by no, necessity. No, why is that necessary? But Wait, I, I do, why? Well, that's what I'm saying. Android yeah. is trying to poke a hole in that. So that's the Apple model. Apple's just saying, okay, this is our model. We totally get this. We're going to – it's lock-in, but a lock-in. It's in the famous walled like. garden. <laughs> and but, but people like uh, you know, Apple. That's like the people, people saying that people like the – remember AOL in the old days where there, it couldn't go to websites? It had its own version of websites. It had its own content, and there were like these go keywords. And if you wanted to be a content provider with Apple, you had to go to Virginia and sign a contract with them and all that kind of stuff. And then you provided – this content, and they gave you a little bit of money if anybody looked at your content, which is cool until the people stopped paying per byte, and then they stopped giving the content providers right. the money, and then all of a sudden, everybody realized that this is this dorky walled garden that had about one one millionth of what was on the internet, because who can be bothered to go to Virginia and make that deal? But the thing is, within the mobile phone ecosystem, you're always going to be in a walled garden, because none of the providers who own yes. the towers... Are going to let you. Well, that's, that department. is the problem, I mean, of course, is done. that the, the providers have managed. And I think this may be unique to the United States, not unique to the United States, but this is a particular implication of the way that the, the, the triopoly has developed here. I think I expect Apple to do very well. I mean, this is a model that they have. Yeah. You know, done very well with the iPod. It's a very similar model. Um, they have a great product, yeah. right? People like their product. It does things that people want. It's reasonably priced now. Um, I expect them to become very dominant, actually. Um, I would expect them to roll over Windows Mobile. Windows Mobile is, is like oh, a crushing God, yes. disappointment to me. Apple has had six versions to Microsoft. get that right uh, so far, and it's so far from being right. It's Microsoft. almost comical. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not really a bright spot in the Microsoft portfolio. If you look at Xbox, it's sort of a bright spot of okay, they did a bunch of things right. Windows Mobile, I think, is an example where they did. I so think you many know what the wrong. fun of the very first um, thing that they did that was wrong. Actually, they they did a few things that were wrong, but the, the they they made two critical mistakes. The first one was that they learned uh, something from user interface design, which is true, which is that the more consistent you are in user interface design, the less likely people are going to be able to figure out your user interface because it is because if it works the same way as something else that they already know, uh, they don't have anything new to learn, and they'll try that, and they'll be able to do it. Um, so when all else fails, if you can't figure out how to make something easy, if you could figure out somehow how to make it consistent with something else, then it may be easier to use. And so they all of a sudden decided that there has to be a start button in the bottom left-hand corner. And... Windows, all, every version of Windows CE has had this particular bug of trying to be like just a small desktop. Yeah, it's horrible. I agree. And that's kind of, uh, that, that's their fundamental uh, first wrong mistake. The second mistake. mistake they made is that the PC was so successful for Microsoft, this model of letting somebody else make the hardware and let a million different hardware vendors compete. And let's see who can come up with the very, very best thing. Uh, and um, right. it worked great on PCs because everybody was making IBM clones, and there was a minimum bar of you know the VGA screen and a keyboard with dedicated cursor keys and so on and so forth that meant that you could write pretty good apps for it. But as soon as they tried to do this on the phone platform, there was such wild variety in the resolution of the screens, the size of the screens, the color depth, the type of input devices that you used, whether there was a keyboard there or not. 
that it became uh, all, you know the the the, the the dramatic differences between Windows Mobile running on one device versus another make it so that it, it it's really just kind of a big mess, like all kinds of different devices and stuff like that. And this theoretically in the PC world, you know, they were just competing on speed, cost, you know, maybe resolution of the screen, size of the hard drive. But on uh, on uh, in the handheld market, you've got these vendors like Samsung and LG and, and uh, I don't know who else makes Windows uh, handhelds, um, all sort of tripping over themselves to try to somehow create BlackBerry, to try to create these, uh, is there a BlackBerry Windows device? No, Trio. Um, tri- tripping over themselves to create these uh, new and unique devices, and they're just inventing new user interface metaphors and all that kind of stuff. And... Uh, uh, it makes Windows Mobile a very um, disjoint experience. This is different on every device. So half the time, if you find a little piece of Windows Mobile software that you download, you suddenly realize that you know you don't have a big enough screen, or you don't have the little touch touch uh, stylus thingamajiggy that you need to operate the software. Right. Yeah. Well, so my hope, I think, with Android, and I can't really speak about the other phone platforms because I don't know them very well. I know there are others, particularly in Europe and outside the U.S. Uh, but my hope is Google's Android will be like Windows Mobile, but without all the sucking. Like it's an o- somewhat open yeah. ecosystem, uh, and they're rebooting from the they're building it from the ground up. And that's the problem, I think, with with Microsoft's approach. They really, really need to raise it to the ground and just say, you know what, this totally isn't working. It's kind of like what they did with Zune, where, where Zune is actually pretty good. People mock the Zune, but the software and the hardware is actually pretty darn good. It's just the, the, they're so entrenched they can't make any progress. But they did the right thing on Zune, even though mo- most people laugh at it. Um, they need to do something similar for mobile, and maybe Android will end up being what Microsoft should have done on the mobile platform, e.g. start from scratch. So I'm really encouraged, although I think Apple's going to be dominant and because they have a good product and they're doing the right things in their walled garden. Um, my hope is Android will give them some strong competition and be more open, as much as you can be on a, on a phone. So I'm willing much. to go out on a limb and make a so, prediction here based on nothing, knowing nothing about anything. My prediction is that ahead. this is going to be like the, the KDE of telephones. It's going to be at the usual open source mis- mishmash. It's going to be way too much configurability. There's going to be competing window managers that you have to download your favorite window manager. And, and, and the, the best programmer is going to work on the window manager that uses the Emacs key bindings. And, and it's just going to be like not a phone for human beings to use. And it's always going to be very appealing to the top 1% of all nerds who are going to find this thing incredibly cool because, you know, look, I've got uh, Wumpus running in a X-Term. <laughs> and, and yet compared right. to Apple and, be, and because, of, because of its open sourceness, there are going to be all kinds of people making all kinds of contributions. And everybody will say, oh, but they volunteered. We, we, should, we should include their contribution. And there's just going to be some really good stuff and some really, really, really bad stuff. And some of the really important stuff is going to be really, really bad. And it's going to be inconsistent with some other good stuff that came from someone else. And it's going to have a page of preferences right. and dot files that you have to fill out to, to get anything to work in any kind of reasonable way. And it's just going to be a hacker's paradise, and it's just not going to be a useful phone because it's, you know, the well, consistency. I think that's, I think that's, there is a risk. There is a risk of that. But I would point to, like, the EPC mm-hmm. as an example of where that ecosystem can actually work. And I think I'm more optimistic than you. I agree that's have definitely you seen a risk. Have you seen an EPC? I think I'm more optimistic. Well, I, I've read the reviews and seen the screenshots. I yeah, you know, it, for a while it looks okay, and then all of a sudden you realize that it's just kind of a, a mishmash of Unix software onto the, you know, that it has the same inconsistencies and things not working right and fonts not looking very good. and Right. That's fair. I haven't actually hands-on. Any One of the things I like about Apple, oh, okay. uh, which I should mention actually while we're talking about mobile platforms and what I like about iPhone, is that they always seem to be just a little bit more ambitious than everybody else, and then they pull it through. Like Everybody's known about multi-touch interfaces, but they've always thought uh, it's just sort of too hard to pull off or like a full, like a, basically a full, you know, the, the, the biggest problem with a small device is how to fit a screen and a keyboard in, into the device. And merging those is brilliant because it means you need fewer keys because the key can morph. You know, different things can be different keys. And everybody always knew that, like, pushing keys on a flat screen with no uh, uh, feedback, with no visceral feeling that you've pushed the key uh, is a problem. And you might accidentally brush some buttons and stuff like that. And, uh, And so everybody was just too scared to try to make a phone that was just a screen. 
they were just too scared and they knew all the things that wouldn't work and all the problems that they would have. And Apple just was a little bit more ambitious and they said, you know, to heck with it. Let's just try to make this thing work somehow. And uh, they actually pulled it off and, and they just tried to go, you know, 10% farther than anybody else even tries. Right. And uh, so that's why it's uh, kind of yeah. cool. What was the question anyway? What did that guy ask? It was about just mobile okay. platforms on phones. Another so let's question? do the next question. All right. Here's Lauren Norman. Hey, Jeff and Joel. Great podcast. My name is Lauren Norman, and I'm a web entrepreneur and Ruby on Rails programmer in Atlanta, Georgia. Joel, for your RailsConf talk, I think you should address the subject of Ruby in the enterprise. There's a bit of a holy war going on for these fundamental Rubyists who shout, Ruby is so great, everyone should use it. Of course, no language or technology can inherently belong or not belong in the enterprise, but the fact is, it's just not instantly practical for a corporation with millions of dollars of infrastructure and Java or .NET to suddenly inject Ruby into the whole mess. So I think the real question is more along the lines of, how should a new language or technology go about entering the enterprise? You know, is there a responsible path, or perhaps it's a task-by-task judgment? Or maybe there are some things that should inherently be true of a language before it should be considered. So what are your thoughts, guys? And finally, my company blog is at snowcaplabs.com, and my personal blog is at lornnorman.com, neither of which is a cat blog. Thanks, guys. No cats, and that's Lauren uh, Norman, L-O-R-E-N-N-O-R-M-A-N.com. Uh... Go ahead. Wait, wait. Let me open on that one. So, the example of corporations that don't yeah. let Ruby into the infrastructure, Google, yeah. is the perfect example because uh, Steve Yegi has written extensively about how he really pushed for that, and their server farms just aren't able to accept Ruby for whatever reason. They have a lot of investment in their infrastructure, and so Google itself is a company that will not accept Ruby into their infrastructure, into their you know main server farms. Didn't you just do a post about the speed of Ruby? Benchmarks and stuff like that. Is that you? Oh, yeah. uh, um, I did not. The uh, yeah, I, I would guess if I were Google and I were operating, uh, what are they operating? Two hundred thousand servers. I just made that up, but yeah, on the or, you know six digits so, uh, on, on on that order number of servers, uh, I would guess it's probably pretty close to a million. Um, that to use a language that is uh, that whose current runtime performance is uh, let's even say three or four times slower. Than another language that you're already using, that all of a sudden means that instead of 100,000 servers, you need 400,000. And you know maybe it's just one small app, but um, that actually those those hundreds costs of those hundreds of thousands of servers start to add up even if you're Google. So I know that everybody dismisses performance and says it's fast enough, but if you're really trying to scale something out, you know if you're trying to blow something out to 100 million people like Google does. Um, performance does really, really matter again. Uh. And plus, I mean, considering Google does use Python, I don't think, okay, you can make the case, okay, Ruby is you know, more dynamic yeah. and better than, say, C or you know, something like that. But when you're comparing like Python um, to Ruby, I think yeah. it's a much less compelling case. I think if you're a really good Python developer, I don't think you're going to get that much out of Ruby. I mean, I, I, I dislike this magical bullet thing that people... Uh, programmers love magic bullets. I mean, and there's always some new magical bullet every five years, and I think Ruby is this. And, and not that Ruby doesn't have a lot of cool things about it, because when Steve Yegi, who's basically a student of languages, says he thinks Ruby's the best compromise of all the things you can have in a language, that means a lot to me. Like I put oh, a lot he of changed his mind a lot. Now he's now he's big but on that JavaScript. Said, <laughs> well, by by default, because you know why? Because Google won't let him. Put Ruby on their infrastructure. So uh, if, he was allowed to put, if he was allowed to put Ruby on their infrastructure, in he would be job. calling for people to use OCaml. I guarantee it. <laughs> no, but, but but wait, I do want to say one thing here, which is, uh, sure, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. That like Ruby doesn't buy you that much more than Python. It is a little bit cleaner. It's more forcefully object oriented. Python still has a lot of leftover functional. Like for example, to find the length of a string, you call the len function and you put the string in parentheses in, in Ruby. It's just a method call on the string. And uh, so that's just sort of a slight wart on the, on the Python uh, language that, that Ruby doesn't have. But other than that, they're pretty dang darn close uh, of uh, the types of things you can express yeah. and how you express them. But this is sort of a question because the question was, so now, if you were a language, how would you get yourself accepted in the enterprise? And, and so I want to know, who cares? Like, why? why? First of all, a language is... A language—it's not a person. Why? It doesn't have its own agenda. 
Right. It's just the language in which you go. We're talking about right. people here. And if it's people, like let's say, I, th- I think what he's really saying is let's say you love Ruby and you want to get your enterprise to start using Ruby because you love it. Uh, and that's okay too. But uh, like, w- what's your agenda here? You know, is it to get Ruby adopted at all costs or is it to solve the business problems that you're supposed to be solving? Ooh, this brings us back full circle to the suckage of working in the enterprise as a developer where – you always have to do things in the non-optimal way, and you have to use the programming language that everybody understands and that everybody's comfortable with, and you try to use a better programming language, and they laugh at you. And There's yeah. an advisory Good board. Good Lord, they're always trying to standardize on board. some language, and by the time they standardize on it, it's obsolete and not fun anymore. Yeah, yeah, it, it's tough. I mean, having worked for large and small companies as a developer, uh, yeah. there are pathologies of both. But I will say, working at a small company, you get a lot of flexibility, um, and that can be worth a lot of big companies. I, yeah, so I don't really know why Ruby wants so, to be in the enterprise. Yeah. Leave it, leave it alone. They, but some of them don't. Some of them do. And uh, uh, honestly, it's like you know, when when it's the right tool for the task, people will start to adopt it. And honestly, the enterprise people are going to be the last people to adopt it because they're going to be very conservative. And the 22-year-old Y Combinator startups are going to be the first people to adopt it because they're 22, and they can do whatever they want. Right. And also, you know, have some time perspective. I think in the computer, uh, the, the software industry, we forget that some of this stuff does take actual time because we're so used to, you know, everything happening instantly that you forget that JavaScript is like barely a teenager <laughs> in the chronological time that it's been out. So some of the stuff just takes, you know, pure time. And I think Ruby dates from like 95, so it's about a similar age. But I think had a much slower adoption curve, obviously, because nobody had heard of Ruby until, what, yeah. four years ago? <laughs> uh, whereas JavaScript was kind of, people had heard about it in 99. So I, I think you got to be, you got to have some patience and have some context in the industry at large about the chronolo- the, the clock time it takes for stuff to become mainstream enough for, yeah, like, even just for the language to be good it. enough to use for, suitable for lots of tasks. Uh, there's a mm, yeah maturity even sure. even Java, which was a the spectacular success, spent a few years in the woods as an internal project at Sun called Oak, which never really saw the light of day uh, um, for what it was intended, which was for a, uh, a language for programming set top boxes, which everybody was all excited about in the uh, early '90s for making this information superhighway thing that everybody right. was trying to make, and uh, suddenly they needed a language for the internet. Uh, and and they looked around and they had this and so it popped out with ridiculously good PR, absolutely spectacular take up, and it was one of the fastest language uh, adoptions uh, you, you've ever seen. Um, even even Visual Basic, geez, it went through many many versions before it, it could even talk to databases. I remember specifically Visual Basic 3.0 was the first version that could talk to a database, and uh, at that point it suddenly actually became useful <laughs> for anything other than toys. And um, uh, you know that's it, 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 even even Visual Basic, which became very popular in the enterprise, took a long time to become kind of acceptable there. I like your point too that the question was kind of backwards. It's like, well, the question should be, how mm-hmm. can I build something awesome, not yeah. how can I use language X? And if the answer to how can I build something awesome is well, yeah, more power language to you. X, then that's fine. But in some ways, the question is really backwards, and, and I think that's a good, very good thing to... to it's kind of weird. It's this sort of partisan, like, evangelical assumption uh, of, like, how do I evangelize my language, or how do I get other people to uh, be excited about it and use it and want to use it, and um, and, re- and and thus remove some of that doubt that I keep feeling every time I notice that I'm the only person on my team that wants to use Ruby. Everybody else is happy just continuing to use Enterprise Java beans. They're using blob. Paul Paul Graham. Yes. The general catch all catch all <laughs> term for your language sucks yes. is blob. Um, yeah. So. Okay. Well, that's uh, gee, we've gone um, about an hour. Did we say anything racist, sexist, yep. uh, offensive to Republicans or uh, religious or anything like that um, that we're going to need to delete? I so. think so. But, I, of course, I didn't really listen <laughs> to anything that was said, so I'll just have to we're find out. Attention. You, can, you yeah, can delete so. that all later. Anyway, um, oh, uh, two things that I want to say. This is just sort of bookkeeping things. Um, uh, one is, uh, I don't know if you y'all know this, but um, we do have uh, tra- a transcript wiki. 
And uh, that is uh, in the early days of uh, Stack Overflow, the podcast, we got uh, a bunch of requests for um, uh, to do something about uh, the hearing impaired. And so uh, what we did is we opened a transcript wiki uh, to allow volunteers, listeners like you, uh, to go in and contribute even just like a few minutes uh, of uh, transcripts of maybe their favorite part of the show or something that they want to get into words that Google can search or something that they want people to read. And it's actually been mod- modestly successful. A lot of the uh, shows have a lot of transcripts in there. So uh, if you have a few spare minutes, uh, if you want to contribute and volunteer, um, please uh, check out uh, the transcript wikis. Uh, they're located at stackoverflow.fogbugs.com. And uh, there's a link to Oh, and Joel, uh, I can sweeten the pot. I can sweeten the pot just a little bit. I'm not really accepting anyone into the private beta anymore. But if you really desperately yeah. want to be in the private beta, just uh, do do some transcript work, just a couple minutes, and then it's on the honor system. Obviously, we're all well. You can see who edited it, it in it. Uh, in the uh, wiki. It'll show you who edited it. So, yep, that's excellent. <laughs> a, a bribe, uh, or just do it out of the goodness of your heart. Or if you think there's something that we yes. said here that needs to be a part of the permanent record. Uh, that, that, that's really nice, and a lot of people right. have been contributing to the Transcript Wiki, and um, uh, I want to um, uh, thank them, especially uh, jo- Josh Paris. So uh, what else? Um, if you have any questions um, or suggestions, things you want to talk about, things you want us to talk about, things that you want to get on the air, things you want to promote that are interesting and will be interesting to our readers, um, here's what you do. You have to record a little sound file so that we can play it, and uh, it's should be less than 90 seconds in uh, MP3 or Og Vorbis format. Those are really the only two formats I've been able to figure out is MP3 and Og Vorbis. I wish I could figure out QuickTime Audio, but I can't find a converter right now. So, um, like I say, try try to get one of those two formats. Uh, and then what you do is you email them to uh, podcast at stackoverflow.com, and uh, hopefully uh, we select the best ones to play every week and, and talk about. All right, that's about it. Yep. See you next week. Okay, bye. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Joel Cherney. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.